Welcome back to the Andrew Curtis Show. And for this particular episode, um, I want to get into a little detail about the things that affect all of our well-being. Um, I became very curious over the last year or two about the factors that really promote uh, people flourishing, people getting the kind of lives that they want. And my journey in particular helped me understand that to know that is to also understand the impact of, of economics, um, what helps create wealth, what can detract from wealth, and the things that, that are kind of associated with that too. And as you might be able to tell too, it's not my primary area of expertise. So I, I reached out and uh, very graciously, Eric Crampton, who was the senior lecturer for, of economics at Canterbury University, and now has moved on to a position with uh, the New Zealand Initiative in Wellington, um, was able to make a little time to uh, have a chat with me about these. And he joins me now. So Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So look, let's get started. I think one of the things that most interested me and where I first reached out to you about was about the impact of, uh, of debt and particularly, you know, that's affected to uh, connected to housing very much um, within New Zealand as well. And I know you've done a lot of work around there. So if we were to look into the impact of that sort of thing to begin with um, and the increased borrowing and, and reduced affordability, um, what role do you see that playing in the average Kiwi's life at the moment? Housing costs are tremendously important. If we look into the hardship statistics and the low income figures, housing costs are driving a lot of the misery that we're currently seeing. And I think that it's driving a lot of the political concern around inequality. So if you look at the income statistics, for example, household income has been growing reasonably. We haven't been seeing the kinds of divergences that you look at in the United States between the top and the bottom. You see rather fairly parallel growth trends from the 20th percentile, so 20% of households earn less, 80% more, through to the median, and then up to the 80th percentile. You see similar growth patterns across all of these. What we have instead, though, is a crazy housing market where housing costs have driven a lot of of hardship at the bottom. Uh, Material deprivation indices wind up being affected by these, where people have had to divert a lot of household expenditure into housing. And that's fundamentally, we think, a problem of not enough houses, and that's driven by zoning decisions, which preclude people from building easily in places where people want to live. And that itself seems to be driven by some of the incentives that face local councils. And when you stop and think about it, it it's kind of obvious, but it takes a while to get there. Uh, When the initiative started working on this problem before I even joined up, it was a bit of a slog to even make the case that it was zoning rules that were driving some of the then housing, the housing shortage that then was starting to become apparent and now is obvious. What was less obvious was what was driving that. It isn't that councils are staffed exclusively by idiots. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of competent people in councils. Um, we might not see that from the decisions they make, but people make decisions that are consistent with the incentives they face and the constraints that they face. Mm. And if you look at local councils, a council that's expanding faces all of the costs of accommodating growth. They have to roll out new infrastructure. They have to deal with political pressure from the NIMBYs who don't really like there being change. Mm. And the benefits of accommodating growth tend to accrue to central government. So increased income tax revenues when more people are able to live in places where they're more productive. That all goes to central government. Increased business tax take when businesses are flourishing because you've got a vibrant community with responsive zoning allowing for more office towers to go up and places for workers to live. 
that goes to come to central government too. Same with GST revenues. Local council sees an increase in the rating space. So the amount of property that's within their remit and the tax that they can then levy on top of all of that. But the way that we handle uh, rate councils set the budget. So they, how much money they think they need to spend to achieve the things that their community says they want for better or worse. And then they split that out with it across the ratings base mm. pro rata by the proportion of value that your house is relative to the overall housing base. What that winds up meaning is that um, councils see a bit of an ability to increase their the overall taxes that they will collect, but it's indirect. And a lot of it gets eaten up in these housing costs or in the cost of providing infrastructure for new housing. And especially when councils wind up at their debt limits, they wind up stymied. Well, so all of the incentives... Yeah. As well, just 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 because I think also there'll be questions that people have got about, um, you know, some of the other factors we might have heard about too. And I do want to pick pick up on on, on sure. where we already, um, but a lot of talk say recently, you know, we've had around. Well, actually, this has all been driven by things like the lack of a, a capital gains tax or the fact fact that uh, housing, from an inv- investment point of view, has been uh, greatly incentivized um, compared to you know any other form of investment. Therefore, all of our working capital is tied up in houses. Do you see this as being something that's parallel to what we're talking about here with uh, the councils or is this just a, you know, maybe more of a red herring? Um, how do you think this plays into that? Well, there are some real distortions in the tax system. I don't think it's quite as much house, as housing specific as everyone makes out. There is a distortion where people have incentive to invest in real resources of any kind as compared to debt instruments, because Mm. if you invest in, say, a bond, um, the interest that's paid on that, a lot of that is just uh, accounting for inflation. But you're taxed on it as though all a real return rather than a nominal return. And as soon as you have any non-trivial amount of inflation, and even a 2% inflation rate can matter a lot in a low nominal yielding asset. It means that the effect of tax on those instruments is pretty heavy compared to you put the money on into a real asset that yields a real return. Inflation is better handled in those. Now, that, that creates a bit of a distortion towards housing, but also towards other real assets. Um, Where the fundamental problem, though, when we're thinking about capital gains and housing is coming in, though, is we have set, unfortunately, regulatory system to make housing a bit of a one-way bet upwards that if councils have made it so that housing supply can never really keep up with demand, then you would expect that you get more rapid price appreciation in housing. Right, right. The, okay. the, um, the correct solution there isn't so much looking at tax, but rather addressing the source of the capital gain in the first place. It shouldn't be the case that housing is a pretty safe bet in that way. It should be a safe enough bet that um, you're going to be able to continue to live in your house, that it's going to work well, but it shouldn't be that kind of an investment asset. So when Phil Twyford uh, spoke to our members at our annual retreat this year, he'd emphasized that his the policies that he's trying to get through, not key, well, he sees key rebuild as being an important part of it. We don't think that that's an important part of it. But the other parts of his supply agenda have a lot of promise. Okay. In any case, he was talking about 
unleashing a flood of development opportunities onto the market so that there aren't the capital gains in the first place. Mm, If you make it so that housing can be as responsive to changes in demand as everything else, right? So when we've had population increases, for example, we didn't have a big run-up in the price of used cars or the price of new cars. We just saw more imports. Cars. Um, every other product and services was able to was able to respond to changes in demand, but housing we've constrained it so that it can't. If right, you right, make right. that more flexible, you don't get those run ups of prices. And those run ups of prices can be dangerous. I I was perhaps too quick when I described it as a one way bet. If you've locked housing supply so that price is the only way that. Um, the market can respond to changes in demand that introduces risk on the downside that if demand slacks off, you would see more substantial falls in housing prices than you might want. It induces a bit of a boom bust cycle on the prices side in housing, where instead you should see it changing by uh, construction ramping up when there's more demand and easing back when there's less demand. Okay. So if I was to summarize that then, um, just to make sure I'm on the right page with this as well, one of the things you're saying then is that uh, what makes housing different from a lot of other areas that might be affected by things like population growth is that other areas, and you mentioned kind of um, cars, it could be, um, I guess, any other type of material good. Um, It's much easier to bring in more of that product and sell more if there's more demand for it than there is for housing right now. And Mm -hmm. part of the restriction to that is the fact that that councils... um, intentionally or otherwise, uh, have created an environment where it's much harder to increase the supply of houses than it is to increase the supply of kind of any other thing. Is that about right? Yep. All right. All right. So look, um, building on that then too, because you talked a little bit about the idea of, uh, you know, because I, I've, I've kind of observed a similar thing that it does appear that price seems to be the only thing that's really changing about, um, you know, th- that's being affected in this, say, regarding housing there too, is that it does create an increased debt burden for people. And my, my concern's often been that, you know, the barrier to entry now, um, particularly if you live in the Auckland area, is that, uh, you know, until you can borrow at least, say, half a million dollars, um, you know, you can't even get in the game to, say, increase your total family wealth, which, of course, if you're, if you're more savvy about ways of increasing wealth, then you know there are other options. But I think we tend to hear that housing's the only way. But how, how um, vulnerable do you think New Zealanders are in terms of the amount of borrowing that we have going into housing right now? Are, are we particularly vulnerable to, to changes there? Like what, where do you see, I guess, our economy being in regards to how, say, our wider economic outlook could really affect that considering how much borrowing we were all carrying? Sure. So the rigidities in the housing market have built in some fragility um, to economic cycles, where if you do see that kind of a downturn, you could see a reasonable drop in house prices. Because if you if you think about supply and demand as usually being a pair of scissors, mm-hmm. if you've locked one of those scissors in place that's, that it can't really, or one blade of the scissors in place, so it can't respond well, everything has to move on price. Okay. Mm. Now, as demand changes. Now, the a, draw, a substantial drop in the value of housing caused by um, changes in demand, that can yield self-reinforcing bad effects through um, houses that become underwater on the mortgage, increasing pressure on, on that. Um, 
you, you can get into some pernicious cycles. There, mm-hmm. You can get worries that in a period of house price appreciation, people will consume a little bit more than they otherwise might have because of the wealth effect where you feel wealthier because the paper value of your house has gone up by $400,000 over the past five years. Right. And so servicing the mortgage, whether you'd gotten 10 years ago, it suddenly looks a lot easier. The debt, your debt to asset ratio looks pretty good. Sure. Um, you might be more willing to engage in a bit more consumption than out of that perceived wealth. On the flip side, if $200,000 of that wealth comes off, Mm. you'll be feeling poorer and you'll be less willing to consume. You might be trying to retrench a little bit. And if you'd bought very recently, you might be feeling a a pretty particular pinch. So it, it makes everything a little bit more vulnerable. And again, it makes the case for fixing the underlying market so that supply can become responsive again, so that we don't wind up in those scenarios. But by any measure, housing in, in New Zealand has kind of gone nuts. Mm. Uh, traditional measures of housing affordability try and compare the cost of the median house or the median dwelling to median household incomes to get a sense of how, how affordable things are. Sure. If we look internationally, uh, there's wide variation. Places that are considered affordable would have median house prices, maybe three or four times median household income. And you'll see that in places where you have a really responsive supply environment. So if you look at Atlanta in the United States, for example, they've had huge increases in population with no effect on housing affordability because they've made it for the city to grow out and for the city to grow up. Similarly, Houston, Texas, everybody complains about the sprawl there. They have seen a fair bit more densification more recently as well. But house prices have stayed flat because you've enabled a responsive supply environment. In places where you have really restrictive supply environments, like San Francisco or Seattle, uh, you start getting into median income multiples like eight times median income, right? And Auckland is like around nine times median household income. We're among the world's worst places for um, housing affordability. Yeah. So we, we actually have seen, I think, in, I mean, it's relatively short term at the moment, but I think, say, the last six months or so um, in Auckland where, where pr- prices have leveled off and in some cases dropped a little bit as well. Um, yeah. do, you have, do you have any thoughts on what might have caused that? Because a lot of it's been pointed at saying, you know, that the foreign buyer ban is responsible for all of that. Um, do you agree, disagree, partly agree? What are your thoughts? There's a mix of potential explanations and I haven't seen any, any good studies disentangling them all. Okay. So you might have expected an effect through the foreign buyers ban, but you'd have to specify a particular way for that, for that to be happening. Um, there just aren't that many purchases made by foreign nationals, at least that we know about, in data that goes prior to the ban. Mm. Now, some of the stories you hear around it that nobody's been able to substantiate in the data, but would also be hard to substantiate in the data because of the particular story. One story has had it that wealthy Chinese people trying to evade Chinese capital controls will buy houses in other places, not on their own name, but through a domestic buyer that they've come to an arrangement with where they give that person the money, that person buys the house and everybody understands that it's really the other person's house, but they don't want it documented because they don't want it going back to the authorities in China that they're kind of making an end run around the capital controls there. If that's what's been going on, then it wouldn't show up in the data but it starts feeling a little implausible. Um, 
the numbers that we do have on foreign buyers suggest that it'd be pretty tough for them to have had any effect on, on the market, but we wouldn't be able to test that kind of a routing. The other potential story on it is that imagine markets were actually worked really well mm-hmm. and incorporated expectations really well. The run-up in house prices that we were seeing in Auckland were outpacing the growth in rents, but you could rationalize them by saying, well, look, investors aren't stupid. They're expecting that Auckland will never be able to sort its mess out. Right. That population pressure combined with a, an unresponsive housing market means that rents will be going up. Mm-hmm. And if we expect that rents are going to be going up and that this is going to be happening for a long time, then the value of that should start hitting house prices today not 10 years from now. Because right. if you're expecting this flow of future income that's a lot higher than you'd otherwise expected, well, you're going to pay more for an asset that comes with that increased expected flow of earnings, right? Right, that's sure. How capital markets work. Yeah. Now, if we think about it that way, the flattening off has come in as central government has started taking Auckland house prices a little bit more seriously. Hmm. We started under the last government seeing a few more innovative approaches around infrastructure finance to try and start unblocking the problem in Auckland. They started thinking about using the Crown Infrastructure Partners uh, infrastructure financing vehicle as a way of funding Auckland infrastructure. The current government has put that on steroids and and uh, improved it substantially. The legislation to enable it is still forthcoming, but it's looking more credible where they're trying to develop infrastructure financing vehicles that would load the cost of infrastructure onto the beneficiaries of it. So if you want to put in a new subdivision, you'd be able to issue a bond that would cover the infrastructure. The bond would be paid off by the people who eventually live in the place where the infrastructure is providing benefits. Mm -hmm. The debt that's issued would match the lifespan of the infrastructure. And it would be Kind of, it'd be outside of council's debt limits because there'd be no recourse to council if anything went wrong. That the bondholders would be the ones who would be burned if the uh, development fell over or if it didn't sell in ways that met expectations and they couldn't service that debt. It'd be the bondholder that would, that would face that cost rather than council. Mm. And there'd be no recourse. So if that kind of vehicle starts coming in, that's transformative where right now in Auckland, everybody's like, okay, Auckland keeps saying, oh, we've got 30 years land supply and they've said this for ages, but they've had 30 years land supply on a particular path where they say, okay, well, we're going to put in this big new trunk pipe going out for water care. And everybody knows that this is where that pipe's going to go. And 10 years later, there's going to be another big pipe. Okay. It makes it easy to buy up the land around that hold it and right, right. out in the drabs, right? Because mm-hmm. then tie all of the value of that infrastructure provision into the land price and you do well out of that by letting it out only slowly. Yeah, if sure. you come up with better ways of financing infrastructure, then people can leapfrog those land banks. And if they can leapfrog the land banks to set up new communities all along the edges, and get around from some get around some of the problems that you'd have in the in the rural urban boundary or the metropolitan urban limit. Uh, that leapfrogging 
again, will change the incentives where instead of wanting to hold your land to release in dribs and drabs, you'd want to get it to market faster than anybody else before those new leapfrog developments can come in so that you get at least some of those benefits before land prices drop. Mm, mm. So that changes the game again. Right, right. Yeah, because I mean, I think one of the things that I've looked at with this as well is that the, the I guess, the, the negative arguments that can be made against this sort of thing. And I think you, you spoke actually well to it earlier on, is that it's really more about understanding what are the incentives that, that push people in a different direction. Because I've heard, uh, you know, some saying, oh, well, you know, it's all just greed driven and that sort of thing. And I mean, I suppose insofar as people are motivated to work in their own economic best interests, then that's fair enough. Um, but as you say, there are certain incentives that are in place that are artificial, right? Like these are the, the government regulations that we've put in place, which, um, can inflate these kind of things. So if we're able to change those incentives, we kind of get the result that we want anyway. Is that a fair kind of summation of some of that? Sure. Sure. Mm. Greed is a constant. Um, yep. we should try and set up, our... <laughs> I'm sorry. Human wants are infinite. Yeah. Yeah. If you set up institutions that only work if people aren't greedy, you're probably going to be disappointed in the outcomes that you see that come out of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Shouldn't rely too heavy, heavily on everybody being altruistically motivated all the time. Mm. Um, if you've got the incentive set properly, like nobody expects that the guys who make cars are, or the people who make cell phones are other than profit motivated. They're trying to do well for themselves and their shareholders. Mm. And that has yielded pretty decent results because of competition between all the different players in these markets. Mm. Where in, in housing, we've got bad outcomes because, well, the regulations kind of prevent it. Sure. Hey, um, I don't know how freely you're able to speak on this kind of thing as well, too. But, you know, regarding the, the whole Kiwi build, uh, I mean, I would call fiasco, but um, those are my words. Yeah. Uh, you know, kind of what are your thoughts on on that policy and kind of where maybe it might have been well-intentioned and where it's where it's fallen over? Kiwi build could never achieve what it promised to achieve unless the government actually fixed the underlying mess in housing supply. Whether it's the government as builder or the government contracting other developers to do the building or contracting with other developers who are going to be doing the building anyway to provide a bit of a backstop guarantee or just a private developer on their own, everybody's facing the same constraints in getting consent to build, get, getting the building consent, making sure that the zoning's in place to enable them to do it, making sure that the infrastructure's in place. All of those things matter. Uh, being able to access enough construction workers to, to get the houses built, uh, getting around some of the bottlenecks that you see in like availability of concrete and some other building materials. All of those have nothing to do with Kiwi Build, but fixing all of those would be necessary prerequisite for Kiwi Build actually working. At the same time, fixing all of those would mean that cut Kiwi Build is utterly unnecessary because the market would be able to respond right. and supply houses. From that perspective, Kiwi Build then is almost a dangerous sideshow where right. the numbers that they that were promised were never achievable. I think that they were promised in an election campaign that they weren't expecting to win and they were <laughs> yeah. just trying to show how much they cared about the issue and how much it mattered to them. Sure. The effect of that, though, has been a lot of pressure to meet deadlines and figures that were never attainable. Mm. And that's come at a, at a cost of redirection of bureaucratic effort where 
in a small country, there are only so many people within the bureaus who know what they're doing well enough to be able to make a difference. And the more of those people get that get pulled away from the things that can actually improve the underlying scenario in fixing infrastructure finance and coming up with the debt vehicles to allow for it, figuring out how the urban development authorities are going to be working and how they're going to be exercising consent authority. There's a lot of really important work that needs to go on in there, but where the political pressure has all been on short-term Kiwi build numbers, it's been a dangerous distraction from that underlying supply agenda that really needs to progress. And then the nightmare scenario that you have is... Imagine if we lost the only minister in the current government that gets those underlying issues because of the daftness on Kiwi Build. Yeah. So a year a year ago, or more than a year ago, I put out an op-ed saying um, Kiwi Build always has been a bit of a sideshow. They're never going to be able to meet these numbers. We should give them a pass on those numbers if they're making progress in the things that actually matter for the overall supply agenda. Mm. Um, the worry that I've had is that John Phil Twyford overall is that he is contributing to some of those supplier issues, even if the Kiwi Bill thing itself is not necessarily delivering. He's been stymied somewhat in delivering the stuff that matters because of the distractions around the stuff that doesn't matter. Right. Uh, the Kiwi Build fiasco, as you put it, and there's a fiasco around it. Mm-hmm. Um, that has diverted ministerial and ministry attention away from the things that would be necessary for the long-term agenda. So if I were in Twyford's spot, and I wouldn't want to be in Twyford's spot, (laughs) I would be saying, well, look, the overall agenda here is fixing housing supply so that we're no longer in spots where people are stuck living in overcrowded houses and garages and cars because it's unaffordable. That's the problem that we're trying to fix. And here's the overall supply agenda that we're putting in place to try and address that. And every house that's able to be built under that improved supply framework that wasn't, wouldn't otherwise have been able to be built, that's Kiwi Build. Right. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. matter who's building it. It's that yeah. you're fixing the darn problem that we've spent the last 15 years not fixing. Mm. And every house that's able to be delivered as part of that agenda above and beyond what we would have expected under normal state of play. Sure. That one would count. Let's call all of that Kiwi build. And it doesn't matter who's delivering the house, whether it's a housing New Zealand house for low income housing, whether it's somebody's mansion, whether it's a new penthouse apartment with a lot Mm. of lower income apartments below it, whatever. It's Mm. all increases in the housing stock. And that's the supply agenda. So what do you think it is too? And um, I'm, I'm mindful of your time too, so we'll, we'll move towards wrapping up on this one as well. But um, with the houses that have been built under Kiwi Build as well, they haven't even found buyers for those. So what do you think has contributed to that? That's a tough one. I had a couple of years ago thought that Kiwi Build was at least harmless, that it would be t- difficult for a government that wanted to build a whole pile of houses in the middle of a big housing shortages to fail to sell the houses. Yeah, uh, sure. They managed to fail to sell the houses. Yeah, you know? mind. I could, yeah. <laughs> wow. But yeah. some of that's going to be where they've been building. So right, right. Christchurch, Christchurch is actually, after the earthquake and after all of the messes, that's an example of a housing market that's actually started to fix things. So we had a lot of problems during the post-earthquake period, and especially in Christchurch City proper. But what you saw as a dynamic response to that was the councils next door to Christchurch in Waimakariri and Selwyn saying, okay, it's time to, to... 
to suit up. Um, why Macariri brought forward like a 30-year infrastructure agenda. So, like the, in their long-term plan, they'd had growth plans. They're expecting the Christchurch was going to grow and that a lot of that growth was going to happen in YMAX. They said, okay, well, here's where the pipes are going to have to go for the next 30 years and where the roads are going to have to go for the next 30 years. They just brought all that forward and did it in a great big hurry because they had room on their, on, their, on their books to take on the infrastructure debt for it and let all of that building happen in WIMAC in a great big hurry. So we had a, a responsive housing environment there because you had a council that was able, able to do it. Um, in a place where housing was already fairly responsive, that's not where you really needed KiwiBuild to be happening. Yeah, yeah. Well, because that, that's been my thought that, that perhaps, I mean, one of the things I will say for market forces and, and what I know of them um, is that, uh, you know, you're better to see where, you know, where is the demand and then build there as opposed to the build the house and then see if the demand will find it. Um, yeah. Which seems to me, again, and I defer to your greater knowledge on these things about what seems to have gone wrong with those houses that they have built, um, that their objective, because they had, uh, you know, quant, um, uh tallies basically they need to meet we say okay well let's build houses um but they weren't built with the you know the, the market force of demand and play and so they just ended up in houses yeah. because people don't want houses they want houses where they want to live <laughs> they want houses where they want to live and they want flexibility so if you're buying a kiwi build house there's some restrictions on when you're able to resell it what if your life changes right if yeah. you find yourself needing to take a job somewhere else on the other side of town or something else weird happens, mm. if the unexpected happens, it, you could be bound by some of the rules about what happens if you sell your house quicker than you'd expected. Sure. Um, you, you might not want to take on those additional constraints if, there are, if you're in a spot like Christchurch where there's other housing available to buy. Mm-hmm. Well, Eric, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk about these things with me. You've been more than generous with your time as well. So for those who are listening as well and want to you know, keep up with the work that you're doing, um, can you give us a little bit of a plug on the uh, New Zealand Initiative and how they can keep tabs on, on what you've been doing? Sure. So we're a, we're a think tank. We're based in Wellington. We're also a membership organization. So we're backed by the membership contributions of about uh, 60 of the country's top corporates. They all pay an annual subscription fee that funds our research agenda. We have independence within our research agenda, though, and we take on the areas where across the breadth of our membership, they see it being really important to help push the boat forward and make the boat go faster for the country as a whole. So we have priority areas in education, housing affordability, and land use planning, local government. Uh, we've taken on a substantial um, bit of work as well in freshwater management because we see that as being an area of pressing concern. All of our work is available on our website, free to download. We have a weekly newsletter um, that you can subscribe to via our website. Uh, our Twitter feed at NZ Initiative. Uh, gives regular updates on the things that we're working on. I'm also reasonably active on Twitter as well, at Eric Crampton. And I occasionally have time to blog and put a few updates on some of the things we're thinking about there as well. Our, our newsletter is probably the best way to keep in touch. It has three articles every week on the areas that we're seeing as important, as well as some pointers to uh, some of our recent research and events that we have coming up. So for example, we're hosting uh, Jonathan Haidt in a few months. And yes, I'm very keen to be at that, by the way. I think that would just be, that's a spectacular catch. So um, yeah, <laughs> that'd be brilliant. So you get notification of that sort of thing if you're on our newsletter. 
Yes, yes. Well, Eric Crampton, Chief Economist of the New Zealand Initiative, thank you very much for joining me. And uh, also, if you've been uh, listening and you want to provide me any direct feedback on this episode, your thoughts, or even places that we could look to take this conversation in future, uh, remember you can do that by going to uh, facebook.com slash the Andrew Curtis Show, um, or you can just uh, search on uh, on SoundCloud or on iTunes. You can find the show that way. Or send me an email through to the Andrew Curtis Show at gmail.com. 